Turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, in your New Testament scriptures. Advent season began last Sunday, but we'll look at three Advent sermons beginning today and over the next two weeks. We'll look at them all from the book of Hebrews. won't preach through the whole book, but we'll look at passages from the opening chapter. So Hebrews chapter 1 will be our first consideration today, and we will look at verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, toward the latter part of your New Testament, after Paul's letters, but before James, Peter, and Revelation, you find the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 1, let me read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help, as well as pray for the needs of our congregation. Hebrews chapter 1 beginning at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Amen for the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you once again for your grace for new morning mercies, and for your faithfulness to us. I pray for the members of our church, the folks associated with this body and our families, that they may know the grace of the Lord this morning, that they may know the sufficiency of Christ. Pray for Brendan, that he would continue to recover well, and Pastor Phillips and Ezekiel, that they would know your grace as they, God willing, get over this virus. Thank you that it has been a case for them that will apparently come and go, So I pray that you would bring them through this time, the loneliness of quarantine, as well as their uh, physical difficulties. Be with them. Please show, continue to show mercy to our congregation and prevent the spread of the virus among this church family. Thank you that you've done that so far. We've been spared from a great spread, and we thank you for that. We recognize your hand and your mercy in there and pray that you would continue to do so. As others in the community work in these times, even working extra or having to plan, as our educators, our medical workers, and other frontline workers, we pray you'd bless them, give them extra strength, and show mercy to our community and our country. Lord, we do pray for the Redmond family today. I think of Aunt Kay and Mom and Dad and Beth and John David, their their children, and Joy, and then the grandchildren. I pray you'd show mercy to them and comfort them. Thank you that by... Uh, the grace of God, Dave, is with you and, and free from uh, the suffering and the illness that he was battling. Now I pray that you would give great comfort and even joy to those who are left behind. That, that while we sorrow at the loss of a loved one or, or mourn uh, at death and, and think even of the enemy of sin that, that brings death about, I pray that we'd find joy and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection promise of his blessed appearing, his glorious coming. And I pray that comfort would would be with our family and that family in this time. 
Thank you for the ongoing grace of God to meet all of our needs, to comfort all who mourn at this time of year, all who sense loneliness or loss, and to point all of us as your people to Jesus Christ, our joy and anchor. And so I pray this morning as we look now at this text in Hebrews, that you would open our eyes to see Christ, to find our joy and satisfaction in him, to celebrate his coming, and to know his grace. Save unbelievers who may hear this message and strengthen your people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you want for Christmas? My sister asked me that question earlier this week, and she's a very on-top-of-it kind of person. But even when she asked me, it just seemed like she was asking me earlier than usual. So either I'm already a little behind or just people are giving attention to those things quicker than usual this year. I've read that many people are are shopping online this year. There's expectation of lots of shipping and other uh, issues there. It's all in the attempt to make sure that gifts are delivered on time. And so people are ordering Christmas gifts now. And even if all that wasn't the case, I mean, it's December. If, If your kids haven't asked you yet, or you've probably thought it, if you're being honest, people wonder at this time of year, what do I want for Christmas? Now, another question that people will be asking themselves this year is, how are we going to do Christmas? The ongoing situation with COVID-19 will present challenges to Christmas gatherings, just as it did for Thanksgiving ones, and it will leave people wondering uh, how different things may be this year. Even if it's not that different in your situation, something may arise to interrupt it. And all those things tend to cause uh, disappointment, stress, aggravation, worry, or just frustration at others in the way they may be approaching the issue. So as we think about those questions, what do I want Christmas to be like this year? What's it going to be like this year? We should ask ourselves, does the Bible speak to that? Does the Bible give us direction for how to focus our thoughts at times like this? After all, I mentioned a moment ago, we're in the second Sunday of Advent already. Now, you can read the Bible front to cover. It's not going to make a direct reference to the Advent season. Just traditionally, this is the time of year when we focus our attention on the incarnation of Christ, his coming to earth. And we are commanded to celebrate that event. So as we focus our attention at this time of year on the coming of Christ. It may be easy to think about disruptions. It may be easy to think about disappointments, but the Bible is going to focus our attention on where it needs to be, where it ought to be, and it will give us comfort, joy, and hope. So what I want to do then in, in the first of the three Advent sermons this year is, is really just orient our focus. Let's get our focus right at the very beginning as we go into this time of year. And let's look at, as I've said, what gives hope, what gives stability, what gives satisfaction, what gives joy. And I want to do it by certainly challenging you from the text, but I think you'll also see the text here is overwhelmingly encouraging. It focuses on what Jesus has done in order to meet those real spiritual needs I just mentioned. So, I want to look at the passage under the heading, I asked, what do you want for Christmas? But I want to look at the passage under the heading, what do you need for Christmas? And as we highlight each need, that's what we'll do, that the verses bring attention to certain needs. 
as we highlight each need, we'll also be able to highlight what God has given to meet that need. The very tradition of giving gifts at Christmas is rooted in uh, an example of a Christian pastor who in giving gifts was seeking to imitate the generosity and the example of Christ. So we're going to look at what we need and we're going to look at what God's already given to us in order to meet those needs. And the passage is going to highlight three of them, three needs. So here's the first from the opening verses. You need Jesus to speak to you. In times of distress, people want to hear from God. Well, the good news in the opening verses is they assure us that God has indeed spoken to us. The author expresses this by highlighting a contrast between how God spoke in the past and how God has spoken now. So look again at the opening words. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So here the author of this letter affirms God has indeed revealed himself to his people. God spoke in the past to our ancestors. And that would be the people of God under the old covenant. And God did it through the prophets. So you think of all those times in the Old Testament when the scriptures say, thus says the Lord, God has spoken. That The Old Testament claims that. The New Testament affirms that the scriptures, this is the voice of God. Now, how did God speak to his people in the past? Well, the NIV reads, at many times and in various ways. So starting with that last phrase, God spoke to his people in different ways in the Old Testament. So think of all the dreams and the visions, the times when God himself or uh, angels would visit his people. All those stories that get told that Aaron covers with our young people and that come up in the preaching ministries. All the way God reveals himself. It might even be his particular acts when God did something to save his people or to judge his enemies. And then the prophets would come and explain the meaning of those events. Those are the many different ways that God spoke to his people. But verse 1 also says he spoke at many times. Now the word translated times there is better translated as portions. And your translation may read that way. God spoke in many portions. Here's how one study Bible explains what that means. The idea is that God's previous revelation came in many parts and was therefore fragmentary or partial. In comparison with the final and complete revelation contained in God's Son. Now notice what the text is not saying. It is not saying that the Old Testament revelation was an error. As if what God says now corrects what he said then. That's not the point of the contrast. Rather, it's this. The Old Testament revelation was partial. It did truly reveal God. But it did not completely reveal God. It didn't reveal him in the most clear way. That revelation would come later when God would speak to us through his son. And that's what verse 2 
affirms. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So in the past, God spoke to the prophets and they spoke God's words. Again, don't get me wrong. They truly spoke God's words. But now he speaks through the son. That is through one who has the characteristics of a son as opposed to a prophet. What's the big deal there? Well, prophets are good. But a son is intimately acquainted with the heavenly father. And in a way that only a family member could be. So from the son you get the completed picture. All the pieces of the puzzle come together. It was true picture before, but now it's even clearer. Crystal clear picture of God through the Son. So, you know what you need this Christmas? You need Jesus to speak to you. And do you want to know some good news? He has. In the scriptures, we have a perfect record of the words and the works of Jesus Christ. And guess what, friend? When you open that word and when you listen to preaching of the word, Jesus will tell you the things that you need to hear this Christmas. And that's what I love about the Bible. God always tells us the truth. He always tells us the things we need to hear. And that might be words that challenge us. That might be words that warm our hearts with love. And it might even be both at the same time. This is what I, again, what's so glorious about our Savior. That even when he challenges, he speaks as a loving Lord. The, the, the correction comes in a way that makes you want to do it. It doesn't condemn or crush. That's how you know Satan is speaking to you. But the words of the Lord, even challenging are uplifting, they're life-giving, they produce good works, they change our will. So, friend, in the midst of all the noise this year, listen to what Jesus has to say, because it will be good things. And before we leave this point, if quickly, if you want just a flavor, what might Jesus talk to me about? Look at the little phrase at the beginning of verse 2. In these last days. When did Jesus appear to reveal God? In the last days. In the time when, according to the Old Testament, God would appear to save his people. To regather Israel. To rebuild the temple. To bring in the kingdom and to bring the nations to submit to God. Well, according to this verse, those days are now. Those works have begun. Here's the payoff. That's what God is up to in his world. So if you're thinking, I need, I need Jesus to speak to me, I need to hear his voice, and you open the word and you read it, and Jesus will assure you God is fulfilling his promises. God is doing his will. God will meet the greatest need you could ever have, salvation from our sins and comfort in the Lord. So you listen to that voice. You take comfort in those promises. That's what you need this Christmas. Now that brings us into our second need. You need to trust in the salvation Jesus provides. You need to trust in the salvation Jesus provides. I mean that both towards an unbeliever, if you don't yet trust in Christ, but but Christians as well. You need to trust in the salvation Jesus provides. And here's how. As, As we come to this point in the text, the rest of the passage is concerned with describing the Son. 
That's the flow, the, the opening of God. God has spoken. But now he's spoken in his son. And so the rest of the verses here that we've read, they focus on the son. Since the son reveals God, since the son brings God's promises to fulfillment, the author says, now let me tell you who the son is. Let me tell you what the son has done to save us. And every detail in the rest of these verses, none of them are throwaway lines. They, they all drive towards a certain conclusion which comes here at the end of the passage. Now, I'll tell you going in, the the conclusion, the overall topic concerns the salvation Jesus has provided. Without the Jesus of the Bible, we don't have salvation. If we have the Jesus of Scripture, the real Jesus, then we have forgiveness, security, and satisfaction. So what I want you to see from these last verses is, what does the author say about Jesus? Who he is, what he's done, how does that culminate in our salvation? And again, some of the qualities at first glance, it may just seem out of place. Okay, how's that fit? What's the purpose of him saying that? But, But I want you to see how each point goes together and then paints a beautiful picture. So let's look at the details and then we'll tie it all together. What does the passage tell us about Jesus? We'll go to the middle of verse two. Concerning the son, we read, whom he, God, appointed heir of all things, and through whom, through the Son, God also made the universe. Now, when this first clause calls Jesus the heir of all things, that is alluding to Psalm 2. By the way, the same language will occur in verse 4, and Psalm 2 will be directly cited in verse 5. It's one of the main texts the author is working from here in the opening chapter. Now, what's Psalm 2 all about? Well, the main character of Psalm 2 is God's anointed or God's Messiah. And in Psalm 2, God says to the Messiah, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. So the Messiah or the anointed one, Christ, is also the son. And God says to his son, ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. God promises his son, you will possess the nations. That's your inheritance. That's what you receive from the father. You're going to govern the entire world. So that's why Hebrews here says God appointed Jesus to be the heir of all Things. There's your first detail. Next, at the end of verse 2, the author says, through whom also he made the universe. Now, what the author is doing now is saying, okay, now here's one of the reasons Jesus inherits the nations, namely, he made them. Jesus made all things. And since he made all things, he has a right to all things. But I think that also then raises a question, all right? Do we yet see Jesus in possession of all things? Chapter 2 will raise that very question. So here's what's going on in just these two details. You've got bookends to the story. God made all things. That's where the story starts. Jesus made all things. And one day, Jesus will take possession of all the nations. But what comes in between? Or what obstacles might there be that stand in the way? of Jesus possessing 
all things? That's the question that verse 3 will answer. As it continues to tell us who the Son is and what he's done to take possession of the nation. So let's look at verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Here are two statements about the Son's nature. He radiates God's glory. He perfectly represents God's being. Wow, what a description. So if God's glory is a light, the sun is a twin source of the light. He's equal to God the Father himself. They both display God's glory. And if that description were not strong enough, the next is even more explicit. It affirms Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Basically, the imagery here is of taking a stamp and placing a mark on an object, like a coin. We have uh, past presidents' heads on our coins. Ancient Roman coins did the same thing. There was a reproduction or a representation of the governing person. And the author says that's how Jesus functions with reference to God. He's an exact representation. He shows us exactly what God's real being is like. So that's who he is. One more description, then we can tie them all together. Look there at the middle of verse 3. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. So not only did Jesus make all things, he also sustains all things. That is, everything continues to exist because Jesus holds them all together. So here it is. Jesus shares God's nature. Since he shares God's nature, he can, as God's agent, create all things. Having created all things, Jesus sustains all things. He holds everything together so that he can one day inherit all things. So now to finally answer the question, how does God the Son, who is creator and sustainer, how does he actually take possession of the nations? The last sentence of verse 3 answers that. It says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is the hinge on which all these descriptions turn. That phrase, after he had provided purification for sins. Because Jesus is who he is, and because he has done what he has done on the cross, he has provided purification for sins. And now that he has provided purification, because he's done that, he can sit down. The job is done, and he can inherit the nations. I want us to think about that for a minute there. First, we need... Purification. The reason the world is in the mess it's in is because of sin. And I heard a preacher say this, so I'll steal it. He said a lot of the images you'll see over the next few weeks, whether it's Hallmark movies, Instagram, whatever it may be, it's going to present to you almost a world without sin, where everything's perfect, where everything's happy. And if you could just get into that world, you'd just be so happy and satisfied. You'd have, you'd have everything you need. They forget the world is not yet like that. It's in a mess. Now, we can strive to have things good in the here and now. That's not wrong. But there are problems in this world. 
There will be problems in your heart, your home, and your community over the next few weeks and until Jesus comes again. And that's the obstacle that Jesus is going to defeat in order to take possession of the nation's sin. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. But guess what? Creation rebelled. Now, does that rebellion thwart Jesus' power? Is he no longer in control? Is he going to miss out on his inheritance? No. In fact, he sustained all things with a view to bringing about this redemption. God kept the world around because he had a saving purpose. So second, then, think of the means of purification. You see that word there in verse 3, provided. The the very form of the word in this context, it, it indicates a situation where the subject acts by himself. He, by himself, provided purification for sins. He didn't have a helper. I I mean a human helper, you understand. Through his perfect life of obedience, through his death on the cross, through his glorious resurrection, he alone provided purification. So nothing you do adds to that work. Nothing you do completes that work. Nothing You don't put the cherry on top. You don't get it across the finish line. It is a 100% free gift. And so third, the here in this point, the results of purification. After Jesus provided purification, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high or in heaven. And by the way, the author here cites another psalm, Psalm 110.1, which opens this way. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? Who are the Lord's enemies? Those are the nations we read about in Psalm 2. Jesus, having finished his work, can now sit down and take possession of the nations. He's not waiting for a future event. It's going to be finally fulfilled in the future, but it started now. Jesus has seated, been seated at the right hand of God, and he is taking possession of the nations. He is receiving his inheritance. You're a part of that. Sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, when they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are part of his inheritance. So, to ask our question again, what do you need this Christmas? You need to rest. You need to trust in the salvation Jesus has provided. Do you believe what these scriptures say about Jesus? You may come from or maybe you know people in or you're familiar with religious traditions that don't accept that Jesus is fully God. Here we have to be bold. That is a lie that will destroy your soul. If Jesus is not fully God, he cannot save you. And that is not what this passage presents about Jesus. He is fully God who has done everything that needs to be done in order to save you. Perhaps you're listening or you come across this sermon. You're just not religious or churchy at all. You don't really care much about Jesus. You just want to have a good Christmas without those extra things. Friends, the scripture declares he's the king of the world. He's the authority. There's no escaping him. There's no Christmas in the true sense without him. But he died for you so that you would place your faith in him and love and serve you. And Christians, friends, maybe you wrestle with guilt over past sins. You're just always carrying around this chain of guilt every day of how much you've done or don't do. Listen to the text. He has provided 
purification. The work is done. And he did it by himself. So trust in that. Celebrate that. Enjoy that this Christmas. Last need I want to highlight, number three. You need to find satisfaction and security in Jesus alone. Similar to the previous point, but but broadening out a little bit. We find salvation in him. Now let's find our satisfaction and our security in him. Verse 4 provides this idea. And it basically restates the previous point. But it does put a little different angle on it. Look at verse 4. This is really how the passage concludes. So, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And by the way, don't miss the reference to the inheritance there. That's how it ties in to the previous discussion. Because Jesus has finished his work, he has received his inheritance. But the application of Jesus' finished work here is a little different. So he became as much superior to the angels. Since Jesus has finished his work and inherited a more excellent name than the angels, well, he is therefore superior to the angels. And and for the author of Hebrews, man, he really needed to make that point. Now, I think we might read this and say, well, okay, I mean, that's fine. Jesus is superior to the angels, but who doesn't believe that? And what's the big deal about making that point? Well, let me explain why the author made it. And then I think how we, we can see how it might apply to us. You see, in the Old Testament, angels played a major role in both redemption and revelation. Now, I don't mean there that the angels saved anybody, but rather when God showed up to do acts of salvation, the angels usually were present with them. They're, they're connected with key moments in Israel's redemptive history. And they also show up at key moments when God gives revelation, when God speaks to his people. So all that to say, the angels, they're tied up with, they're connected with God's mighty acts, particularly those under the old covenant. And so to appreciate angels was to appreciate the means God used in order to bring about his purpose in history. So I think we might read this text and say, oh, they must have venerated or worshipped angels or something. You know, they, boy, they really got that wrong. No, on one level, they were simply appreciating the means God used in the history of salvation. But what they weren't seeing is what we've tried to highlight today. The movement from anticipation to fulfillment. That's why the author opens as he does in verses 1 through 2. God has spoken, but now Jesus has come. He is the superior revelation. Angels played a role. They anticipated, but now Jesus has come. He has done all that needs to be done. So the author of Hebrews, he wants to make this point. Jesus is superior in order to move the audience to maintain their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He's telling them, hey guys, don't look backwards. Don't look back to what was anticipated. Look to what God has now done. And trust in that. In just a few weeks, some of you children and adults as well, I still get giddy, you'll open Christmas presents. Maybe your family will put them out a few days in advance just to tantalize you so they can look pretty and build anticipation. Now how many of you are going to shred the paper on the morning of December 25th, hold up the gift and say, thank you, that's wonderful, and then say, okay, now let's wrap it back up and put it under the tree. 
because, man, it really looked good sitting under the tree. None of you are going to do that, are you? The tree anticipates. The gift is what matters. And the author of Hebrews is trying to tell his audience, look, a lot of good things in the anticipation. It's not like wrong and now God got it right. But it was promised this is fulfillment. And so you need to focus on the fulfillment. That's what the author is saying. And so I think that's how we see this year how we might benefit from this text and apply this text to our lives. Focus on the fulfillment. Focus on what matters most. Focus on the anchor and the core joy and the real meaning of Christmas. Friends, I love the trappings of Christmas. I definitely tip to the sentimental side. When it comes to those things, holiday lights, get-togethers, presents, classic songs, movies, all that stuff. And I hope in some measure such things could be enjoyed this Christmas. But it's not cliche to say that's not what satisfies the soul, is it? That's not what ultimately gives Christmas its meaning. We celebrate the holiday because God arrived in the flesh and he arrived in order to accomplish our salvation. And so again, I say it as a challenge. Don't see what's not happening, what's different, what's disappointing. Look at what's ultimately happening. But friends, I also say it as an encouragement. If Jesus has come and given salvation, nothing on this earth can take that away from a Christian. No circumstances, not death itself, can take that joy and that hope and that security from the believer. So find your satisfaction, find your security there. In Jesus alone. What do you need this Christmas? We need the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us deserve him. None of us can earn him. But at his own initiative, by his own grace, for his own glory, he came to show us what God is like, to provide purification for sins. So rest in that mercy. Listen for those words. Find that satisfaction in the Lord. Let's give thanks. Let's pray together.